Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, welcome to today's session of the Globalization uh, Institutions and Economic Security Workshop, which I run with Sarah Brooks. Uh, thank you all for coming. I'm very pleased to introduce Lisa Martin as our speaker today. She is Professor of Political Science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, where she's been for the last couple of years, and prior to that she was at Harvard for many years. Lisa is one of the world's leading scholars on the subject of international institutions and rational choice approaches to understanding them. She is the author of two books, Coercive Cooperation and Democratic Commitments, both with Princeton University Press, and many articles in leading journals, including International Organization, World Politics, International Studies Quarterly, International Security, Presidential Studies Quarterly. Okay, I'll stop. Um, much of Lisa's work has been on the ability of institutions at both the domestic and international levels to facilitate credible commitments and therefore cooperation. The paper she's presenting today links the credible commitment function of institutions to their signaling function, bringing together two strands of the literature in a theoretically innovative way. Lisa will talk for about 30 minutes, after which Eleonora Mantiachi, a PhD student in political science, will provide some comments. Uh, then we'll open it up to questions and a general discussion. After the talk, everyone is invited to a reception out in the lobby. Um, thanks, Great. Lisa. Thanks for coming. Okay, thanks a lot, Alex. Um, I should say, if you have clarification questions while I'm going along, feel free to interrupt me and, and ask them. Um, don't need to save that, that kind of clarification thing till the end. So, uh, yeah, as Alex said, this paper is about international institutions. And the basic idea is, is right there in the title, which is the idea that international institutions can serve both as weak commitment mechanisms and potentially as, cost, potentially as costly signals. And the idea of this paper is to um, try to put those together um, into one framework. So the basic question I'm asking here, the basic puzzle is asking about how do international institutions exert their effects on their member states? And at least in the rationalist literature, looking at international institutions, there's sort of two generic types of answers. Um, the first answer is that the main effect of institutions comes through um, their commitment effects. And basically the idea here is that if you, you join an institution, say the World Trade Organization, and you don't live up to your commitments within the WTO, then there is some monitoring that's going to catch you reneging on your commitments, and then there's some kind of enforcement or punishment mechanism, right, that's going to impose a cost on you when you're caught for, for doing that. And that doing that, therefore, can make reneging less attractive than it otherwise would be and can allow cooperation to emerge among members of an institution. Uh, the main alternative, which I think has been explored less, although it's been mentioned a number of times in the literature, um, is this idea that instead institutions might serve as costly signals. And the idea here is that the costly signaling function is more of an ex-ante mechanism. It's more of a sunk cost mechanism, something that happens as you enter the institution as opposed to committing you after you're in. Um, this is what's been seen as sinking costs. The basic idea here would be, for example, that to join the WTO, you need to take a number of steps before you ever get to join that are costly for you to take. And by doing that, the institution can select in only those members who are likely to live up to their commitments within the institution and screen out those members who would be less reliable or in other ways impose costs on the existing members. So those are sort of the two generic answers out there in the literature, sort of ex-post mechanisms versus ex-ante mechanisms. And as I mentioned, in the rationalist literature, I think credible commitments have actually received much more attention. The commitment mechanisms, if you go back to you know, the original work on international regimes or Bob Cohan's work or some of the stuff of mine that Alex mentioned, I think we've devoted much more attention 
uh, overall to commitment mechanisms, but um, there has been some attention to signaling. Um, just to give a, a brief, I keep clicking this thing to change the page, sorry, used to my own clicker. Um, just to give you a brief overview of the argument and then uh, tell you a little bit about the literature background to this. So the, just to give you a snapshot of the argument I want to make, the premise of my argument, or at least one of the premises, is that if you focus only on the commitment mechanism, institutions can only really provide weak commitments. That is, institutions do not have the enforcement, international institutions don't have the enforcement or uh, punishment capacity to absolutely prevent their members from reneging on their commitments. That is, they can prevent some commitments or some reneging, but they can't prevent all potential reneging, right? So if you look at the World Trade Organization, obviously states are always being found to not have lived up to their commitments. They, they don't, you know, free trade in the way that they should. If you look at military alliances, we find that about a quarter of the time, uh, members of an alliance, when it comes to a case of militarized conflict, don't live up to the terms of the alliance. Obviously, states that sign on to human rights uh, commitments often don't do anything but since they've signed on to a human rights commitment. So at most, I think institutions can only provide weak commitments. That is, they can tie the hands of some member states, but not all of them. Now, one interesting question, which really isn't the focus of this paper, but I think is worth speculating on, is, is why is this? Why do institutions only have weak commitment mechanisms? That is, why don't member states delegate enough uh, enforcement capacity to IOs in order to allow them to really tightly tie the hands of their member states and really prevent this kind of reneging. And I think sort of generically out there we can think of a few reasons. One is simply the presence of uncertainty over time, right? And if you make an institution extremely constraining, it can become very rigid, and if circumstances change under time, over time, that can lead to the collapse of the entire institution. Whereas if you leave some loopholes, some ways to get out, and let, and let member states out for a short time, and then they can come back in, that can sustain cooperation overall, right? So that's sort of the downs and rock kind of argument that they call optimal imperfection. Um, and there's other variations of that out there. But I, you know, in general, I think there are various reasons that, that member states are reluctant to give too much enforcement capacity to, to IOs. Um, so what this means, as I said, is that institutions only have weak commitment capacities. They can impose some costs on member states who renege, but not enough to prevent all reneging from occurring. And so if we only look at weak commitment institutions, therefore, we find that they do allow uh, cooperation to emerge that would not emerge in the absence of an institution, but they also have some undesirable properties, both from a sort of practical and a normative perspective. So what I do then is I add to this sort of weak commitment kind of model an ex-anti-costly signal that is saying, as I said, that when a new state joins the institution, it has to pay an upfront cost or an entry fee to join the institution. And I find that when we do that, we resolve some of the problems of weak commitment institutions. And also I would argue, although I can't, I don't really have enough empirical evidence to fully support this yet, but I think we also get more empirical leverage um, in terms of understanding the effects of institutions when we think of them as providing the signaling function um, in addition to the commitment function. Uh, just to give you a, a brief uh, survey of some of the most relevant literature here, um, this distinction between commitment and signaling, at least in international relations, was really drawn most clearly by Jim Fearon back in 1997, where he used the terms um, tying hands versus sinking costs and made very clear that these are actually two separate mechanisms. Not that an institution can only do one or the other, but that logically they're really two very different mechanisms. Are you paying the costs ex ante or ex post? 
Um, even though he drew the distinction in 1997, as Alex and I were just briefly suggesting, not everyone sticks to the distinction. There is a fair amount of muddling of these two mechanisms in the literature. Um, but, I, but in this, literature, this brief literature review here, I'd just like to highlight some of the authors who have focused on the signaling function most um, most narrowly. Um, one is Bronislav Slanchev, who looks at military mobilization. And his idea here is that military mobilization can serve as a commitment mechanism, um, but it also can serve as a signaling device, right? Simply mobilizing the military um, is, is a costly thing to do, can send the other side a signal of your resolve. So that's the signaling function. On the other hand, an appropriate mobilization reduces your costs of fighting, right? And therefore is sort of an ex post commitment mechanism as well. Um, one person who's looked pretty extensively at this idea of institutions as costly signals is Jim Morrow. And he does this in, in his work on military alliances and really quite explicitly talks about why, for example, writing down an alliance and sort of rearranging your troops so that you can interact with other alliance members um, has this kind of signaling property. Um, looking more at sort of IPE, one interesting sort of application of the signaling ideas has been uh, looking at the IMF, and in particular IMF Article 8, which is a provision that IMF members can sign on to, they don't need to, that uh, would then require them to avoid certain kinds of currency practices. Um, and this was initially looked at by Beth Simmons in 2000, and what she found is that states who signed on to Article 8 complied when it was easy for them to do so, right? So as long as they didn't have any good reason not to do what Article 8 said, they would do it. Um, Jana von Stein then built on that in a 2005 article, and she explicitly controlled for the selection process of who chose to sign on to Article 8. And she finds that when you explicitly control for that, Article 8 is really having no effect uh, beyond the selection process, that it really does not seem to be having any tying hands or commitment um, function whatsoever. Now, uh, von Stein concludes from this that the Article 8 itself is having no impact. It's not changing state behavior whatsoever. And I actually think that that is um, a conclusion of the model uh, of the findings that you really can't draw. That is, even if institutions only have the signaling or screening function, they still can allow cooperation to emerge that would not emerge in their absence. So the fact that institutions don't have ex post commitment functions doesn't mean they're having no causal effect. So that's sort of one slight misconception out there in the literature that I wanted to mention. And then also I should mention, obviously, Alex's work on the UN Security Council and the way that Security Council approval of uh, coercive strategies uh, lends, has a signaling function in its own and then changes the way that other states respond to those. I should mention there's also a lot of work on BITS, I think some of which Alex is involved in as well, uh, looking at bilateral investment treaties as potentially signaling functions. So that's the... Um, the basic story of, of where the literature stands. So as I said, what I want to do is I want to start, first of all, by thinking of institutions purely as commitment mechanisms. But commitment mechanisms, uh, uh, it's sort of weak commitment mechanisms. They can only impose sort of modest costs on states who renege on their commitments. Um, and I'm going to model this, and then I'm going to get some results from that and then add into the model sort of a very simple signaling portion up front. So um, in the game, the sequence of moves is going to be that there is a state that wants to join an institution. Think of, for example, China uh, deciding whether it wants to join the World Trade Organization. They're going to call that State A. So State A is this potential new member of some existing institution. And the first move in, the, uh, in this model is that going to be that nature chooses whether State A is a reliable uh, state or not. What I mean by reliable is simply um, what are the b benefits of cooperation for State A? 
and a reliable state is going to be one that gets high benefits from cooperation. An unreliable one is one that's going to get low benefits from cooperation and therefore is likely to renege on their commitments because they get a higher payoff from reneging than from cooperating. So nature is going to choose whether this potential new member A is reliable or not. Um, the new member will be reliable with some probability P. And uh, the existing members of the institution don't get to observe whether A is reliable or not. They have uncertainty about this. Um, this state A then chooses whether or not to join the institution. And then uh, the next stage is that an existing member of the institution, we'll call that state B, chooses whether or not to cooperate with state A. So um, cooperation could emerge whether or not A joins the institution, right? At least in the abstract, B could choose to cooperate with A outside the context of the institution, right? The United States could sign a bilateral free trade agreement, right, you know, with China if it wanted to. Um, but it also could cooperate with A if it joins the institution. Um, if B chooses to cooperate with A, then A goes ahead and either also cooperates or chooses to renege on its commitments, and then that's the end of the game, and, and both states get some payoffs. So that's the basic, the basic structure of the game, a pretty, a pretty straightforward kind of um, cooperation commitment sort of story. As far as payoffs, we're just going to set it so that if the states don't cooperate, they both get a payoff of zero. Um, and as I said, this notion of being reliable is basically about the benefits of cooperation for this new member, uh, state A. So a reliable state A is going to get a higher payoff of cooperation than an unreliable um, state A. Um, in this commitment model, um, if A joins the institution and then reneges on its commitments, it's going to pay some cost C, right? So that's the cost that the institution or the members of the institution are going to impose on members who renege on their commitments. And if, a, um, and if B is trying to cooperate with A and A reneges, then B also has to bear some cost, right? So sort of an underlying, um, for, for B at least, sort of prisoner's dilemma type of, type of payoffs here. B pays some cost if A if he tries to cooperate with A and then A reneges on its commitments. Now, what I'm going to do is I said I'm interested in institutions here as weak commitment mechanisms. So I'm going to focus on um, these punishment costs being in a range that are going to be high enough to induce cooperation from a reliable A, but not from an unreliable A. Okay, so remember... Um, a reliable A gets a higher benefit from cooperation than an unreliable one does. So the institution could, just by construction, set punishment costs at a level that would make it um, not worthwhile for the reliable type to renege, right, because they get the be higher benefits of cooperation, but they are not high enough to cause the unreliable state uh, to not to renege, because they would prefer to get this, this, um, this reneging payoff, the temptation payoff, basically. So that's the basic structure of the game. And let me talk about then the, um, the equilibrium that we get from this. And again, I'm calling this a weak commitment equilibrium because I'm assuming that the punishment costs are in this range that they create weak commitments. Um, I, I set this up so that if A doesn't join the institution, there is no cooperation between A and B. So in other words, you do need some punishment cost C in order to induce even a reliable A to cooperate at all. Otherwise, no cooperation could emerge. So there is some commitment effect here that's, that's leading to cooperation between A and B. Um, in equilibrium, then, what we're going to see is that both reliable and unreliable state A's are going to join the institution. 
because it's costless to do so, they don't pay any ex-ante cost to do so, they might as well go ahead and join the institution. Okay, so everybody joins, it's, um, it's pooling. Uh, the fact that A has joined the institution doesn't allow B to learn anything about A's benefits of cooperation or anything like that. So then B has to decide whether or not it should go ahead and cooperate with state A. And basically, B will do so if its belief that A is the reliable type is above some threshold. Right, so remember the, um, the belief or the probability that A is reliable is, is P. And if P is high enough, then B will go ahead and take the chance and cooperate with A. Uh, where this threshold is, is defined by the uh, benefits of cooperation for state B and by the costs that will be imposed on B if it tries to cooperate and then A reneges, right? So given those, you get some threshold above which the probability of A is high enough, you're willing to cooperate below which you don't. Um, so if we think then about uh, the benefits of this institution from the perspectives of different types of states, we see that these reliable state A's do benefit from the presence of the institution because they would not have been able to achieve any cooperation in the absence of the institution. They wouldn't have been able to induce B to cooperate at all. But now they can get cooperation, right? So reliable states do better uh, when this institution exists than in the absence of any institutions. But unfortunately, from sort of a normative perspective, these unreliable state A's also benefit uh, because they're now able to sucker B, right, into cooperating sometime and then reneging on their commitments. So these unreliable state Bs also benefit quite a bit from the presence of a weak commitment institution. Um, from the perspective of, um, of this state B, um, B is happy to have this weak commitment institution if you're in this world where it's pretty likely that A is reliable, right, where P is above this threshold. Okay, so if P is above this threshold, then B also benefits from the institution because he's able to cooperate pretty often with A. So his expected payoff is greater than in the no institutions world. On the other hand, it's also now exposed to some risk, right? Because now there is some risk that B is going to end up trying to cooperate with an unreliable A. So expected payoff is higher, but B is exposed to quite a bit of risk um, in this setting. Okay, so that's just the, the weak commitment story, okay? That's, that's what we get if we only have institutions that all they can do is um, weakly commit um, members to cooperate. So what I want to do now is add to that model a signaling function. So this is so the signaling model here is not really a separate model. It's an addition to the weak commitment one. So I'm leaving all the parameters, the sequence of moves, everything for the weak commitment model the same. Um, and the only thing that changes now is that when state A chooses to join the institution, it's going to pay some upfront cost. Okay, and this is this cost to Z right here if it chooses to join the institution. That's an entry fee essentially that you pay to join or a membership fee. Um, and so I add that to the model, um, look for um, a, a, a Bayesian a perfect equilibrium. And what I find is that the kind of equilibrium that you get really depends on, on two fundamental parameters. One, just as in the weak commitment model, um, the prior belief that A is reliable or P is going to be very important, right? So because that, again, creates the th this threshold where B is willing to cooperate or not. So that continues to be important. But also the size of the signaling cost, or Z, is also going to tell us what kind of equilibrium we're going to get. So let me now just characterize the equilibria of this uh, signaling model in terms of these two parameters. So up here um, in the columns, we have this parameter B, uh, parameter P, excuse me, how reliable is A? You know, do you think that you're in a world with a lot of reliable A's out there or not very many of them? Um, and then the rows are, have to do with the signaling cost Z, right, which I, sort of divides to three areas, low signaling cost, high, and moderate. Um, and just to characterize what happens in these different equilibria, let me start at actually at the bottom of the table in the bottom row. 
and just talk about the logic of each of these different cells and, um, and what emerges. So in the bottom row, we have a very high signaling cost. And this is where uh, the cost that a state has to pay on joining the institution is higher than even the benefits that a reliable A would gain from cooperation. So B sub R are the benefits that this reliable type gets from cooperation. Obviously, if you set the cost of joining the institution so high that it's higher than any benefits that A could possibly derive from the institution, A is not going to join the institution, right? Even the reliable types aren't going to. So if the signaling cost is set very high, uh, you get a pooling equilibrium, which simply means that the unreliable and the reliable A's behave in exactly the same manner. They don't differentiate their behavior in any way. Um, and it's, in this, it's uh, an equilibrium which neither type will join the institution. The cost of doing so is just too high. And then no cooperation, obviously, will emerge. Okay, so bottom row is just a very high signaling cost. No one joins the institution. You don't get any cooperation. Uh, the middle row is much more interesting. And this is where you have a moderate signaling cost. So now the cost that the state A has to pay on joining the institution is lower than the benefits of cooperation for the reliable type. On the other hand, the cost is high enough that it's higher than the benefits that the unreliable type could get from joining and then reneging, right? Because what, the, what an unreliable state A really wants to do is to get into this institution, sucker up the benefits, you know, of, of joining the institution, and then not actually live up to any of its commitments. And its payoff, it's, if it's able to get away with it, with that is this A minus C uh, uh, term here. So if you get signaling costs in the right area, right, where they're lower than the benefits of cooperation for the reliable types, but higher than the benefits of joining and then reneging for the unreliable types, you get a nice separating equilibrium. And in the separating equilibrium, the strategies of the reliable and the unreliable types are completely distinct, right? So by observing whether A joins the institution, now state B can completely determine what A's type is and make its own strategy completely contingent on that. So with the signaling costs in, and remember, the signaling costs think of as an entry fee, right, just what you do when you first join the institution. If you get them in this appropriate intermediate range, uh, the reliable states will join the institutions, and B will go ahead and cooperate with that state, and the unreliable states will not join the institution, and B will refuse to cooperate with them when they don't. And you get that regardless of B's prior belief about the likely reliability of A. Right, because A now, A's now behavior is completely determined by the signaling cost. So B can basically ignore prior beliefs and just um, say, look, you join the institution, obviously you're willing to pay the cost, I'm going to cooperate with you. Okay, so this is, you know, again, sort of a nice outcome, obviously, from B's perspective, if B can get Z in this appropriate area. Um, finally, what happens if um, signaling costs are set very low? So you do have to pay some cost for entering the institution, but not very much. In particular, low enough that they are lower than the benefits of uh, reneging for this unreliable type. Right? So in this case, what happens? Well, uh, think over here when you're in this situation of likely there's a lot of reliable states out there. Um, in this case, all of the A types are willing to pay to join the institution. Right? So low signaling costs, they all go in. And because the likelihood that A is reliable is pretty high, A then go, uh, B then goes ahead and cooperates with everybody. Right, so you get another pooling equilibrium up here, but this is now a pooling equilibrium in which all A's join the institution and B cooperates with everybody. Um, basically, this is very much the same outcome as you got in the absence of a signaling cost, right? Very, pretty much the same logic. 
Um, down here, when it's unlikely that A is reliable, you get one of these slightly more complicated semi-separating equilibria. Basically now, in this situation, it cannot be an equilibrium either for all A's to join or all A's to stay out. So what happens is that reliable types will pay the signaling cost and get in. And the unreliable type will uh, randomize here. We'll choose some probability between 0 and 1 that you're going to be willing to pay this cost and get in. You have a basically a mixed strategy equilibrium is the only thing that, that fits here. And then if state B observes that A joins the institution, B also then plays a mixed strategy. There's some probability then that will be, B will respond by cooperating with state A. Okay. So those are basically the different kinds, basically four different kinds of equilibria that we get um, in, this, in this situation. So that's what we get from this uh, when we add these signaling costs to a weak commitment model. Now, if I want to compare now these two types of institutions uh, from the perspective of different types of states, you know, how do they benefit or lose from the addition of the signaling function um, to, to the weak commitment institution? Well, if we think, first of all, about these unreliable potential members, these unreliable A's, um, they are either indifferent or lose when you add a signaling function, right? They never do better by having to pay a signaling cost. They're indifferent in the cases where B doesn't cooperate with them anyway, and there's a, small, and there's a loss for them when they, um, when they do join the institution. The loss can either be large or small. Um, if they pay a small cost to join and then they get to renege, uh, that, that, that can be a loss. Um, that can be a loss. On the other hand, if they're in one of these separating equilibria, right, where there's a moderate signaling cost, now they get screened out of the institution entirely, and they lose quite a bit uh, compared to the situation where there was no signaling cost. Um, if we think about this from the perspective of reliable potential members, um, here whether they gain or not from the addition of the signaling cost depends on this uh, probability that A is reliable. So if you're in a situation <clears throat> like here, where it's unlikely that A is reliable, there's only a few reliable potential members out there in a sort of mass of unreliable potential members, um, then, whoops, why am I, I'm going the wrong way here. <laughs> then, um, then, in fact, the reliable types are going to gain a lot from the introduction of signaling costs, right? Because before, B wasn't going to cooperate with them. There weren't many reliable states out there. B refused to cooperate. Now these reliable types can sort of distinguish themselves, right? They're going to stand out from the crowd because they're the ones who are willing to pay the signaling costs, and they gain a lot by being able to differentiate themselves now from the unreliable types. The only exception here would be if the signaling cost is set too high, right? If you're in this area where the signaling cost is very high, because now A is not going to be, even the reliable types won't pay that cost, and you're not going to get cooperation, whereas before you might have been able to. Okay, so that, that's when they lose. Um, on the other hand, if you're in a world where it's quite likely that A is reliable, right, most of the potential members out there are ones that would gain a lot from cooperation, um, now A actually loses a bit. Now a reliable A actually loses a bit from having to pay these signaling costs because they basically get the same behavior from B that they had before, but now they have to burn money up front right, to join the institution. So they lose a little bit, probably not a huge amount relative to the benefits of cooperation, but they do lose something. So that's the comparison of the institutions from the perspective of um, potential members. Probably more um, useful from an empirical perspective is to think about this from the perspective of, um, of the existing members of the institution, because after all, they're the ones who are going to set these signaling costs, right? They're going to decide what entry fees demand of new members. Um, and so what do they do? Um, well, they can lose. I mean, if they, if they try to um, introduce signaling costs and they get it wrong, 
they can actually hurt themselves. And in particular, if they set the signaling cost too high, they can drive the, uh, the reliable types out of the institution, right? prevent potential reliable new members from entering. And they could actually lose relative to the situation of no signaling costs. Um, on the other hand, if they set the signaling costs very low, then there's really not that much of a difference uh, from the situation of no costs at all. They might gain a little bit, but they really don't gain all that much. On the other hand, if they get it right, um, if they get the signaling costs in this appropriate intermediate range, existing members of an institution can gain a lot, right? Because now they can very cleanly screen out unreliable members, get the reliable ones in, um, and cooperate only with those who work, are willing to cooperate, and they're not exposed to risk anymore. So what this means is that existing members of an institution should be highly motivated to try to hit the sweet spot in terms of setting these signaling costs appropriately. They don't want to get them too high. They don't want to get them too low. And if they get them right, they can actually benefit quite a bit uh, relative to the situation of no signaling costs. Um, and again, the basic logic of this is the third point says here is that if you get moderate signaling costs, that's going to screen out uh, unreliable potential members but allow cooperation to emerge with the reliable types. Um, okay, so let's think about this now in terms of empirical implications. If we wanted to, to push forward this uh, sort of theoretical approach and think about what to do with it empirically. Um, and one thing that we can think about is from the perspective of different types of states, should they uh, demand that there should be signaling, function, uh, signaling costs or would they argue instead that there should not be signaling costs? Uh, signaling costs? Um, what we can say, just a, a few things say that we could say and probably go out and at least potentially test empirically, is that potential members who would derive only low benefits from cooperation are going to be pretty much unequivocally opposed to any entry fees whatsoever, right? Because those entry fees are, are not going to help them uh, at all. Um, on the other hand, potential members who would gain a lot from being able to cooperate um, are going to favor or be willing to pay these signaling costs especially if they are in a situation where they need to distinguish themselves from many unreliable potential members out there, right? So you're uh, a state just transitioning from communism, right? And everyone is very skeptical about all you transition economies, whether you're serious or not about adopting market economies. If you really want to, right, you really, you're, you really want to distinguish yourself as having a strong desire to move towards a market economy, you would really love the opportunity to pay these signaling costs because it's going to let you differentiate yourself from those who, who aren't so serious about it. Um, on the other hand, if you're in a situation where most potential members probably are reliable, B is willing to cooperate with you anyway, you're just going to lose something now by having to pay signaling costs and burn money, so then you're not, you're not going to be too thrilled about it. Um, as I said, though, probably the most um, testable of the empirical implications are those regarding the existing members of the institution. Um, and so these are what I've identified. I mean, I think you can pull actually quite a few empirical implications out of this model if you push it a little bit, but I want to focus on the ones that strike me as the most compelling. Um, for existing members, first of all, as I said, they should really be strongly motivated to get the signaling costs just right. Um, they, you should see uh, existing members of institution when they're thinking about, you know, say, expanding NATO or expanding the EU or allowing a new country into the WTO, really putting a lot of effort into getting these, these entry fees just right. They don't want to get them too high or too low or they just hurt themselves. Um, another implication, which I think is actually quite counterintuitive, and who knows, it might turn out to be wrong, but anyway, what the simple model predicts is that if you look among existing members of an institution, uh, they should actually not disagree a lot about the appropriate level of signaling costs because the appropriate level of signaling costs is defined entirely by the costs and benefits of cooperation for the new members, 
right? All you want to do, I'm sorry to flip back to this equilibrium slide again. If you want to get costs in this moderate range here, that's defined entirely by this little thing in parentheses here, right? Getting the costs of entering an institution between the benefits of cooperation for the reliable type and the benefits of being able to renege for the unreliable type. There's nothing about the characteristics of the existing members of the institution in that expression, right? So the benefits that the existing members of the institution are getting or the, the cost they'd have to pay if the, if the new member reneges or whatever, those actually are irrelevant to the appropriate level of the signaling cost here, which I think implies, I mean, this is obviously just a, a two-player model, but I think an implication is that existing members then should not really disagree a lot among themselves about the appropriate level of signaling costs, right? Because those existing members who really love the institution and those who, you know, just sort of think it's okay, that, that doesn't really matter, right, for the, exist, the appropriate signaling costs. So that, as I said, I think is sort of counterintuitive, maybe not right, but, but I think it might be worth going out and playing with. Um, as far as what, where existing members would like to set signaling costs, as the benefits of cooperation for these potential new members go up, they should be pushing signaling costs up as well, right, to keep it in that moderate range. And likewise, as potential new members would uh, derive a lot of benefits from getting into the institution and then reneging, that should also tend to drive signaling costs up, right, again, to keep it in that moderate range. So as I said, one of the uh, more interesting things about this and something that I really hadn't thought about until I actually worked through the model is that the appropriate signaling costs are defined by the costs and benefits for potential new members, not the costs and benefits facing the existing members of the institution. Um, okay, so let me just talk for a couple more minutes uh, before I run out of time about some empirical applications of this model where I'd like to push it ahead. Um, one is actually some work that I've already done and I've already published with Paige Fortna um, in which we looked at peacekeeping. And I think peacekeeping is actually a nice application of this. I mean, the model there is more specialized, right, because it's, it's tied to the specific peacekeeping situation than this model. But peacekeeping, I think, is sort of the quintessential weak commitment in institution, right? You send peacekeepers in. They're usually quite lightly armed. They certainly don't have the capacity to prevent a determined foe, right, from starting to fight again. So it really looks very much like a weak commitment institution. And they've been called paper tigers, right, and that sort of thing. And the question is, why would peacekeepers have any effect whatsoever, right, when they're so lightly armed and have so little enforcement capacity? So what we do is to, you know, as I said, do basically a variation of this model in which the government in a civil conflict has to pay some upfront cost if it allows peacekeepers in, right? It's costly to the government to allow these peacekeepers to come in. And in, so it's just a variation of this signaling model. And what we're doing then is modeling the demand for peacekeeping. That is, when will a government in a civil conflict allow international peacekeepers into the country? When will there be a demand for them? A lot of the work on where peacekeepers go is more on the supply side. Uh, but basically, whenever a government says, look, we want peacekeepers to come in, the international community always responds somehow, right? You, you find some troops somehow from the UN or for some regional group to send them in. So we actually think the demand side of this might be more interesting. So in this model, what we're able to do then is to uh, generate some predictions about the relative frequency of three different outcomes. The three outcomes in the game we set up are simply that the government and a rebel group continue fighting with one another. Um, another possible outcome is that they, they do reach a peace agreement. 
uh, without peacekeepers, right? This would be the case where the government is unwilling to pay that upfront cost of allowing the peacekeepers to come in, but the other parameters of the model are such that they get to a peaceful outcome anyway, right? That's sort of the, the cooperation without institutions outcome. Or thirdly, you get an outcome where uh, peacekeepers do come in. And we um, ha develop proxies for the various parameters in the model and, you know, run it through a set of uh, civil wars um, from, I think, 19, the 60s through the 90s, and we get pretty good results. We, we actually get very good results predicting the difference between continued fighting and peacekeeping as outcomes, and we get decent results in, uh, in predicting the distinction between peace without peacekeepers and peacekeepers, right? So between groups two and three here. The results aren't quite as strong there, but still really hold up pretty well statistically. Um, uh, two other applications of this that I've really just started working on are applications to NATO. Um, here the idea is that as NATO has expanded, um, it demands a lot of, at least potentially demands a lot of new entrants to NATO. We could think of that as a signaling function and see whether the model fits pretty well. Um, it turns out actually to be harder than anticipated to get a lot of detail on more recent accession negotiations. But right now what I'm trying to do is go back a bit more historically and look at some older uh, historical expansions of NATO. And hopefully I'll be able to find more material there. You know, and then there's the EU, right, which obviously has gone through these waves of expansion. There's a ton of literature on uh, accession to the EU and EU expansion. Um, I think it's inevitable I'm going to have to look at it. I've sort of put it on hold because once you start looking at the EU, sort of everything else disappears because it's such a massive application. But I think it's inevitable I'll have to do some application to, uh, to the EU. Um, then one other one that I'd just like to talk about in a, a little bit more depth is the World Trade Organization because this is one that I've focused on a bit more. Um, what we see historically is that the demands made of new members to the GATT slash WTO have escalated quite a bit over time. In fact, if you look at the GATT, it's actually striking how little the GATT often demanded of new members uh, to the GATT. In fact, a lot of former colonies, former dependencies, were simply grandfathered into the GATT without having to do anything whatsoever, really not making any commitments to do anything. Um, over time, this has changed. Um, what we saw was that especially in the uh, early 1980s, the demands made of new members started to rise. Uh, one interesting case was Mexico, which actually negotiated um, an accession agreement right at the end of the 70s that demanded very little of Mexico in terms of coming in. And then because of domestic political turmoil, actually never joined uh, the GATT at that point. And then came back about four years later and said, never mind, we actually do want to join and now had to pay much higher upfront fee to get into the WTO in terms of domestic reforms and that sort of thing, cutting tariffs and all of that than it would have otherwise. Um, another thing we observe is that the WTO uh, and GATT do not have consistent rules for entry. That is, all of this is negotiated on a case-by-case -case basis. And that, I actually think, uh, is an implication of the model. That actually is evidence in support of the model, because the model says you want to get these entry costs at the right level. You need to calibrate them, right, to the costs and benefits of each potential new member. So if you just had hard and fast rules that, you know, this is what you have to pay to get in, it, it wouldn't be appropriate, right? You, need, you can't have a one-size-fits-all sort of entry fee here. So the fact that there aren't any hard and fast rules about this, which is the source of some consternation to potential new members, is actually an implication of the model. Um, the demands made of, of new members, in fact, have varied quite a bit, again, consistent with the model. Um, in most cases, especially in recent years, what new members have to do is to go way beyond simply accepting existing WTO rules and do a whole slew of reforms above and beyond that, right? So if you look at cases like Russia, China, there's a lot of concern about this, very high demands being made of these new members. 
Um, I think that in a number of ways, the WTO um, accession process fits the, um, the model's assumptions quite well. You have the existing uh, members engaged in this one-sided imposition of entry costs. Uh, you have a lot of expressions of concern about reneging, and when there's more concern that a new member is not going to live up to its commitments, there are obviously more ex-ante demands made of that member, right? Think of that as a higher entry fee. And in fact, somewhat to, to my surprise, because I really didn't look at the WTO stuff at all until I was through with the, through with the model, when you look at those who have uh, studied WTO accession, they actually use this term membership fee, which is exactly the way I've been thinking about the, the signaling cost in this model. So that actually surprised me a bit. Um, in terms of the kinds of costs that are imposed on countries, um, so far I've just looked at some cases. I haven't done anything real systematic on this. But when you do have countries uh, that might actually be able to benefit quite a bit from getting into the WTO and then not living up to their commitments, you do see pretty high entry fees imposed on those states, thinking about countries like Mexico, Russia, China. So what I want to do is obviously get at this more systematically in the case of the WTO. Um, there's a number of ways that I think we can develop proxies for what these entry costs are. Um, anything from the length of the negotiations to the number of tariff schedules they require to implement or, or that kind of thing. So I think it's at least promising, although obviously very, very empirical. So just to uh, conclude and say the major uh, points I'd like to have you take away from this, um, one is that if, if institutions can only provide weak commitments, which is what I think is the case for most international institutions, the benefits that they can provide are limited. They can allow cooperation to emerge that would not emerge in the absence of the institution, but, but their ability to do so is, is pretty limited. Um, and when we add a costly signal to this commitment function, we can enhance the prospects for cooperation, but only if the signaling costs are just right, right? If you get them too high or too low, they're actually not going to benefit anybody. And what we mean by the cost being just right is defined by the costs and benefits of cooperation for potential members, not for the existing members of the institution. So again, when you're looking at the variation in uh, entry fees, that variation should be explained by the characteristics of these potential new members, not by the characteristics of the existing members of the institution. Okay, so this is, um, this is obviously work in progress. I'm really happy that I had a chance to present it here and looking forward to your feedback on it. I, um, I actually just have one point about the paper and just three about the empirics. Um, the first observation about the paper is that um, in the model of costly signal, so the second you introduce, you um, and, um, allow no costs on B that is on the current members for allowing um, A to join the institution. And this seems to be a realistic assumption, although in some cases, on the other hand, is it possible, it's possible to think of costs for B. So for instance, it has become sort of a common joke that the European Union current members, if they had to undergo all the procedures they themselves put in place for the Eastern European countries, they would never qualify for EU memberships. So there's sort of credibility and monitoring as well, maybe. So if we go back to the model and we actually assume that the, P, the B pays a cost and we assume that this cost is Z, so exactly what the, the applying member is, is paying, then what happens is that the expected utility of B changes. And if the expected utility changes, then the threshold you were talking about 
changes as well. And if that's the case, then these impacts are the interactions among the actors, which means that um, it could not be any more the case, as the paper claims, that the costs and benefits of cooperation for existing members do not have an impact in the determination of the appropriate signaling costs. Um, so maybe it would be useful to tweak this assumption, see what the observable implications are, see if it's worth it or not. And a case in point, I believe, is with the WTO case that you were talking um, about. You uh, make two observations. The, the first one is that there is a sort of a generalized increase in the quantity and quality of, of requirements for new members. Um, these might be in part also of a consequence of the fact that the depth and uh, um, scope of cooperation has increased. So it could be the case that there's just so much to catch up with, just increased. But I was uh, very um, impressed by this other um, empirical regularity that you found, which is that um, uh, current member states seek what you call flexibility in procedures. So they want to decide how, when, and under what conditions um, um, states have to pay what they have to pay to enter the institution. Um, now the downsides of this flexibility in procedures could be that there's uncertainty and potentially there might be conflict among current members of the institutions. You know, Maybe someone want a state to enter the institution, some others don't, and so they twist and tweak this uh, requirements and um, so it might be interesting to investigate in that ca case under what conditions states that design an institution actually go for flexibility and under which other conditions they um, opt for more certainty. Um, my other point on your on, on the empirical implication regards the peacekeeping. Um, you were bringing the example of the Forna and Martin paper um, that, that models the peacekeeping operation as a signaling device, and so it doesn't have this commitment, weak commitment component that this paper you're presenting today um, has. Um, well, in this case, we are in luck because uh, peacekeeping operations could be studied as a weak commitment device. We could add that other node that um, the paper you're presenting today has um, in particular, the um, Forna-Martin paper investigates the um, um, peacekeeping operations authorized under Chapter 6 of the UN chart, and those um, allow for um, the governments. Uh, first of all, they, um, these peacekeeping operations um, are sent only to countries that want them, that ask for them. That's the um, the difference between chapter six and chapter seven. But what that means is that the troops have to leave immediately if the government withdraws the support. So in that sense, the government um, does have a chance to renege on the, um, on the commitment previously taken. And another possibility, and we were talking about that a little um, earlier for the empirics, is uh, the variation in the alliance design with respect to the intra-alliance regulation. And so some, you know, as, as we were saying, some alliance work just as weak commitments institutions, and that's all, and some others actually um, have some signaling device. So there's a, a range of characteristics that alliance have. Um, for instance, some just call for arbitration mechanisms in case of disputes among members, while some others um, um, go as far as claiming that um, 
um, members should cooperate in the production of military capabilities. So, and that's the long paper, and that's all I have. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Those are fantastic comments. I really, um, I really do appreciate it. Some, some thinking about extensions and other, you know, empirical applications of this model. Um, this idea that the existing members of an institution don't pay a cost when new members come in, and and should we assume they have to pay a cost as well? That's that's. I, I hadn't thought about that explicitly. I mean, one thing that occurs to me is that the. Uh, the cost that existing members pay in terms of negotiating and potentially providing benefits to these new members when they come in, um, I mean, part of that is simply the offer of cooperation, right, making themselves vulnerable and uh, potentially reneging. Um, on the other hand, there's probably some cost existing members have to pay even if you're in a just a purely commitment institution, right? I mean, the, the process of getting in involves some cost anyway. So I'm not sure that's really going to differentiate these signaling institutions from other types, but it certainly is something that I should think about some more. Um, as far as the application to the WTO, uh, I mean, I think part of what you're getting is that there, there may be other explanations other than the signaling story, right, for the, for the pattern of entry fees that, that we observe there. And I think that's right. And I think, you know, the way as I push this uh, ahead and sort of settle on um, being willing to use some proxies for what the membership fee actually is, the question is going to be, does this model explain it better or does something simply about increasing complexity of the WTO over time, right, explain it better? And I think I will be able to sort of get differentiable hypotheses out of this, but that, that's going to be exactly the question. Um, one thing you pointed out, which is which is absolutely accurate, which is that the um, the peacekeeping paper that I talked about that I that I've done with Paige, the, the model on that paper is in fact a pure signaling model. It really doesn't have this weak commitment function at all. Um, I'm not sure that adding the weak commitment function to it is really going to change the predictions very much, but that that certainly is something that I I should play around with for the purposes of of what I want to argue here. I thought it was most useful to add signaling to a weak commitment institution rather than having them be two separate types of institutions. Um, and it's, it's a little bit hard to think of institutions that are purely signaling institutions. So I don't know, but it's possible peacekeeping comes pretty close. Um, but that's, yeah, that certainly is a, a distinction there that I, I think was worth drawing. Um, yeah, and as I said, we discussed earlier today this, this application to alliances and comparing alliances to one another. And I, I thank you for that suggestion. I think that's going to be quite valuable. So I look forward to your the rest of your comments and questions. Should I go ahead and? Okay, I'll start over here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and I, I mentioned this paper by uh, Bronislav Slanchev that looks at military mobilization, which is exactly that. I mean, not only does mobilization serve this function of sort of burning money, but it also actually you know changes your cost of fighting, right? So it actually changes what's going on down the road. Um, I think 
I am getting partly at that because if you join the institution, you, you then now are going to be vulnerable to the punishments inflicted by the institution, this weak commitment costs that you weren't vulnerable to before. So there is some continuing effect of the institution um, once you decide to join. Um, but what you're asking about more, I think, is this idea that the kinds of domestic reforms that are being demanded of members, um, are they burning money or are they something that simply is, is fundamentally changing the costs and benefits of cooperation for, for these potential new members? Um, and I, I guess I'll have to think about that. One thing I would say is that for the burning money analogy to work or for these, these costly signaling models to work, you need the cost um, that is being demanded to be something that is different for the reliable and the unreliable members. Right? It has to be something that the reliable members are willing to pay and the unreliable ones aren't. So if it really is just purely burning money, that doesn't really work very well. Right? But in this case, it's, it's calibrated so that it's, it's related to the benefits of cooperation right, for these reliable members. So it's, um, I mean, I think burning money is right in the sense that you just pay a cost up front and it doesn't fundamentally change anything about your, your cost-benefit structure. Um, but it, it, just one clarification there. Um, I'm trying to think how we would... I mean, how we would distinguish what you're suggesting then from what's going on here. I, I think one way, at least in the WTO case, I would suggest that what we're getting at is something that is more of a costly signal than anything else, um, is this idea that new members of the institution are often asked to do quite a few things that go beyond the existing corpus of WTO regulations, right? So it's a bit hard to justify that in terms of saying we want new members to be like the existing members, right, and to have, you know, basically the same, the same structure as we have and the same costs and benefits of cooperation. You're really asking more of that. And, and I think it makes sense to, to talk about that as paying an upfront entry fee. Um, I guess I'm, I'm trying to think of the best empirical way to get at that. I mean, certainly you'd want to look at case studies. You'd want to look at the specifics of what's being demanded. And if the specific reforms that are being demanded are ones that you can reasonably connect to the likelihood of future cooperation or whether they sort of are going beyond the re, you know, reasonable demands of that. Um, I mean, if I think about cases where countries want to join an existing institution, they haven't been able to. They often complain that the reforms that are being demanded of them are not anything that are, is it at all reasonably related to what they're going to do once they're in the institution, right? And sort of Turkey and the EU is sort of an obvious example of this. So maybe the most promising path to go, from my perspective, would be to look at those potential entrants who haven't yet been able to get in and see what's being demanded of them why is it, is that really just a high entry barrier or is it something that is more functionally connected to what they're going to do once they're in, which is what you're suggesting? Yeah, good question, though. Uh, yeah, Erin. Right.
Yeah, yeah, those those are good points. Um, yeah, just for clarification, so in the peacekeeping model, it, it does look a, it looks a little bit different than this model, but I think conceptually it's quite similar. So the the actors in that model, instead of state A and state B, are the government and a rebel group that it's fighting with. Um, and you know, just as in this situation, it's sort of a side one-sided asymmetry, and the base, excuse me, asymmetric uncertainty. So the idea is that the rebel group is uncertain about whether the government's going to live up to the terms of any peace agreement or not, um, which is usually the case, right? And most of these peace agreements and civil conflicts require the rebel group to make itself very vulnerable, right, to disarm. And so the rebel group is going to be quite concerned about whether the government's actually going to, you know, be the type that's going to live up to the terms of a peace agreement or not. And so the idea is that by having a government that can then invite in peacekeepers, which is sort of joining the institution of peacekeeping, um, that, again, is a cost that some governments are willing to bear and some aren't and therefore might allow the rebel group to learn something, right, about the government's intentions down the road. So I think that actually the analogy works reasonably well, although you're right, the labels on, you know, entrant versus member is a little bit different. But think of the rebel group as, in a way, the existing member of the institution who's trying to decide whether or not to cooperate with this potentially unreliable government. Um, now, the point about the government being able to actually determine the terms of the peacekeeping operation, um, I mean, if that's right, that does throw a wrench in the works, I'll have to admit, right? Because the, the, the setup of this model is that the, the institution, in this case, you know, the outsiders who are providing the, the peacekeeping forces, they sort of determine the cost associated with it. And if the government has a full menu of what costs it's willing to pay, that might go away. Um, I think you might be able to get at that with a more complex model in which the signaling cost is not just the dichotomous one that's in here, right? You either pay the cost or you don't, but in which the government chooses what cost it's willing to bear in a more continuous way. And then what you would suggest, would um, expect is that, you know, some governments would accept quite intrusive peacekeepers, right? Because then that would be a very reliable, sig a very reliable signal, really distinguish them from the unreliable governments. And others might allow peacekeepers in, but as you said, so constrain them that there's very low costs associated with that. In that case, you would expect the rebel group to keep fighting, right, because the government would basically be revealing itself as, as unreliable. So that would be a modification of the model. Be, it might be interesting to see where we could go with that. Um, as I said, I do feel pretty comfortable with the empirical results we've gotten with the simpler model. I think they're getting at something, but that, that might be an interesting way to, to move that work in the future. Yeah. Yeah, fair. It would. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, so the idea behind weak commitments is that there's a punishment cost that is enough to induce cooperation um, and therefore is, is valuable. So that's why I don't think the stochastic nature of shocks necessarily undermines even a, a weak commitment cost, right? Um, because you're going to, because the cost is relatively low, you're going to be able to back out when you need to, right? So let's say you get in the future, you get subject to a, a big shock, right? A, a massive recession. You simply find it way too domestically, politically costly to live up to your WTO commitments. Now you're going to accept that weak punishment cost. But the institution itself is still probably going to keep on going. Not everyone's going to pull out. It's going to be okay. Whereas if the punishment cost is very high, you're sort of now forced to remain in this institution, right, because it's so costly to get out. And knowing that, you might not ever join in the first place, right? I mean, it really makes the institution as a whole quite fragile. And that's, that's sort of the downs and rock. Um, now, the downs and rock argument. Now, the way that they address this is not that the punishment cost should be low, but that there should be these sort of, you know, provisions you can enact as, as opt-outs for short periods of time, or if you opt out, you pay a cost for opting out and then a cost to come back in, or, you know, something more complicated. Uh, but hopefully, by just assuming the cost of getting out is relatively low, um, I, hopefully I'm getting at some of the same issue there. I was actually speaking earlier with one of your graduate students, I don't know if he's here, who's looking at bilateral investment treaties, and one of the things he's, he's finding is that governments that have long, long time horizons don't want to bind themselves too strongly. Uh, so that sort of fits this, I, I thought that was interesting, because it fits exactly the story that when you care a lot about the future, you might be subject to domestic or economic political shocks in the future, then you, you don't want to really be tightly bound in because, you know, you want to you want to give yourself some wiggle room. So I think that's what's going on. Um, you know, I mean, we could just talk about it in terms of not wanting to surrender too much sovereignty to international organizations, but I find that a little vacuous. <laughs> so, anyway, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's coming back a bit to the first question that was asked back here, right? What if the, the, the costs or reforms that are being demanded of you up front aren't just signaling but also changing 
basically the way the game is going to be played down the road. Um, and, and you've linked this in an interesting way that the, the signaling costs themselves are going to increase the benefits of cooperation. Um, yeah, I'll have to I'll have to think through how that how it that goes. I mean, if they're really in tight lockstep with one another, then you're probably right that you would not be able to get these nice little equilibrium. You wouldn't be able to screen out basically the unreliable types, right? In that case, the reforms are performing a very different kind of function. Um, I think one thing you might be able to say is that. It, if that's really what's going on, then having a sort of one-size-fits-all kind of entry cost would be perfectly fine, right? Because they're, they're the idea is that if you just, if you look like this, you're going to get high benefits from cooperation, and so we should just make everybody look like that. And this sort of needing to fine-tune things case by case is really not what you would expect. So to the extent that we see more fine-tuning, I think it, it fits this idea that it's not really that tightly tied to the realized benefits of cooperation overall. Um, I mean, the, the, the WHO is interesting in this respect because obviously these accession negotiations have become a very big deal. Um, on the other hand, it's something that the W, the you know, the actual Uruguay Round Agreement say nothing about. Um, I mean, they simply say we're going to you know let the Secretariat deal with this. So it really is just it's almost an extraordinary level of flexibility. And you see very much the same thing in the EU, right? I mean, of course, all new members have to accept the acquis, but beyond that, yes, you know, all kinds of stuff on a case by case basis. So again, I think it fits the assumptions of the model, but, um, but yeah, definitely something I should think about. Yeah, oh, back here. Um, yeah, I mean, this is <laughs> this is long same as I mean, I really am thinking of them as simply as simply a cost that's paid up front. It's just it's some, a cost that a new entrant has to bear, and it doesn't directly increase the benefits to the existing members. Um, what it does is it allows the existing members, at least potentially, to differentiate between those who are going to actually cooperate reliably and those who aren't going to. Okay, so it really is just something. And, and the costs, um, again, they're, they're higher than the cost, than the benefits of cooperation for some types and not others, right? So it allows them to differentiate. Um, if instead what the costs are doing is providing a direct benefit to the existing members, um, I think that it gets us back to the case that then you would not expect them to vary that much on a case-by-case basis, right? Then the new member should just sort of set a fee, a scale, right? If you want to come in, you pay X, and it's X for everybody, regardless of your size, regardless of anything, because it's a direct benefit to us. And that's not what we see. I mean, I think we see this, this very careful attempt by existing members of institutions to calibrate their entry demands quite precisely. And, and to me, that fits the way I'm thinking about it better, but it's certainly... It's certainly a valid argument. Okay, that's something that we'll have to carry out, I think, empirically. Yeah. Yeah, Alex. Um, I was thinking you didn't have any observable implications that relate to, say, the depth of cooperation. And it seems like you would for this argument. And in particular, I was thinking that for institutions that can customize entry fees, um, that you should get deeper cooperation. But for some, in some institutions, you can't customize, right? And I think this is just a crucial distinction that you didn't play up that much in the paper. During most of the theoretical discussion, it made it sound like the existing members just have to kind of set an entry fee, and it applies to all of the new potential entrants. But then later in the paper, it becomes clear that you really do have customization in mind. And 
that would really be optimal if you could customize it and you should get deeper cooperation. And this would work for cases like the WTO and the EU, which allows customization of entry fees and has deeper cooperation. So I was thinking you could take it even further, and it's sort of along the lines of what uh, Aaron was saying. At the other extreme, you might have institutions where not only can't the existing members customize, they, they don't even set the entry institution that's just a treaty, say a human rights treaty, where countries sign on, but they do so with reservations, understandings, and declarations. Oh, right, right. So in some ways, they're setting their own entry fee, and if, if my logic or your logic can be extended, we'd expect the, the shallowest cooperation in those cases, because it's the farthest away from the existing members being able to customize, mm -hmm. and that's exactly what we see in a case like that. Mm -hmm. So I guess I, I just thought That's okay. So those that's a series of interesting points. One, um, I mean, in this model, I mean, there isn't anything in here that really gets directly at this concept of depth of cooperation, right? I mean, the two state it's cooperation is just again a dichotomous choice. Um, so if I really wanted to get at that, I'd have to move in the direction of offering a level of cooperation, right? And see, and then I, I I think you're probably right, right? That the more that you can adjust these entry fees, the more you're going to be able to achieve these deeper levels of cooperation. Um, but I think it, that probably does push it in um, quite a different direction. Um, also, in order to do that, I, I think I would have no choice but to move away from this very simple two-player setup to allow the existing members of the institution to be confronting um, a series of potential new members, right? And, and thinking about, you know, does it have to be one-size-fits-all or, you know, can we tailor things each time? Um, there actually is an interesting article out there, uh, which is Michael Gilligan's work. Um, has has a sort of a purely theoretical piece um, showing that you know if you don't force institutions to have a sort of one size fits all package for new members, you can achieve a lot more cooperation than you can uh, if you're if you're tied into one size fits all. His, his isn't so much a signaling model, but it's the same idea that if you can really tailor packages, you can get a lot of cooperation to emerge in situations where you otherwise couldn't. So maybe building on Gilligan's model would let me um, let me say something about that. Um, finally, the human rights case. Um, it, so this is a model where if you allow a new member into an institution and that member then reneges, it imposes costs on the existing members, right? And you know, so it's, it's I mean, from so it's sort of a PD type setup, right? And human rights institutions really aren't like that, uh, right? I mean, human rights institutions. I mean, they're you know, if another country is violating its citizens' human rights, a government is violating its citizens' human rights. That might be costly to the rest of the world, but it's costly regardless of whether, you know, that state has joined a human rights institution or not, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of these humanitarian costs are going to be there regardless. So it really isn't a PD-type setup. I don't think that the reneging on commitments is itself directly a cost, right, for existing members of institutions. So I'm a little hesitant about um, applying this to situations where you don't have a lot of, you know, interdependence of, of payoffs, basically. Um, but that, so that's why I think applications like, you know, military alliances, trade agreements are probably the more fruitful areas to apply something like this. 
Um, it does, though I have to admit, it does then sort of beg the question of what is it that human rights institutions are doing, right? Because they're not providing a lot of commitments. And I, at least according to this model, I don't think they would be very effective signals either. So I, I, don't, I don't think it answers what I still see as a big puzzle out there. And, and, you know, I think, I mean, you probably have to move away from a purely rationalist framework, right, to get at, to get at some of that. Yeah. Um, back here, and then. Absolutely, and I think, again, I mean, the case I've looked at the most closely is the WTO, and I think you see some of that. You know, you see states backing off and not really, you know, putting the effort into the accession negotiations that they might have because they, they worry about this, and they think more is being demanded of them and they're being singled out. Um, it's also the case that um, organizations that are very interested in helping states join the WTO, like UNCTAD, right, um, they work a lot with these states and try to provide them with the resources necessary to get them through this kind of process. So I think there is, there is quite a bit of that going on. But um, certainly what I would expect is that as the demands made of these new members get too high, it, it is going to lead them to pull out and say, look, it's just, it's just not worthwhile for me to do that. Um, again, if you wanted to get at this question of directly comparing what is being demanded of me as opposed to that guy who got in, you know, last year, then I would need to go in the direction of thinking of a series of potential new members, and I'm starting to think that might actually be a very useful way to go because you, you want to think about that. Um, in the WTO case, what's interesting is that some people who write about this do talk about precedents, right? So they talk about, look, if we do this in this case, what precedent is it going to set? What are the implications going to be for new members? On the other hand, that kind of worry doesn't seem to be having much of an effect on the demands that are actually made, right? So, um, so it is something that's a concern, but I don't think that it's actually influencing the policies um, all that much. Okay, Danielle. <laughs> Sorry, didn't mean to overlook you back there. Figure one. Oh, I don't have it. I'm, I don't have a slide here. Sorry, but. They're independent. They're they're completely independent in this in this setup, right? So you could have an institution that is purely commitment. You could have one that's purely a signal, or in this case, as I've tried to do, have them both. But the the commitment costs and the signaling costs vary completely independently. They're not they're not tied to one another. Um, okay, so if C is zero, where's my thing? There. Okay, so if C is zero, right, so you what you want to do is to try to get here, right? So if C is very low, the commitment, the punishment that can be inflicted by the institution is very low, this A minus C is going to be relatively high. 
right? So the implication is that if the cost that the, the institution can impose is pretty low, the punishment cost is pretty low, then you're going to tend to push up the signaling costs. So this yes. Is Com so that would be complementary. Here? Yeah. Yeah, you can't meet that condition. But you don't want to meet that condition. I mean, <laughs> I mean if you're... <laughs> here, here? It's not, it's not too bad, but it's, it's also really not very much better than having no signal at all. I mean, it, do, it, it doesn't really buy, buy you many benefits at all. What you really want to do is you really want to get here. Um, so, I, you, yeah. So I think it is complementary. Um, yeah, up here, I mean, again, yeah, I think it's, it's not all that relevant if you're up here in the very high range. Yeah, that, but that's, that's nice. That's an implication that I hadn't really thought about that I maybe could play around with. Yeah. Let me just make a note before I forget that. Um, Sarah, I think you had your hand up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you mentioned that the benefits of cooperation also depend upon reliability, right? But when it's not just the reliability of the asynchronous, it's kind of an also reliability of the these who are part of it. So when you have some density of reliable and unreliable, right now nature's choosing, right, among them. Um, do you think of it in the sense of, as you think of the movement to an end game, Yeah. Yeah. That's it, it. Might be. I'm not sure how well it would fit or not. So one thing, just uh, just to clarify, is that the the benefits of cooperation. I mean, reliability is just defined as the benefits of cooperation. They're not even conceptually different. I mean, that's just how reliability is defined. Um, so what you're suggesting is that this should move from being just a, a one-sided uncertainty situation where the, the existing members don't know how reliable new members will be to having two-sided uncertainty, two-sided um, private information. Um, we could, you could do that. Um, I, I don't know how much you would get out of it, though, um, because if you do that, then you would want the existing members to potentially have an opportunity to signal or have an opportunity to commit themselves. Well, presumably they're already committed, right, because they're institutions. So whatever commitment effects it's having, that's already there. Um, I guess the, what the question that would open up is that is there some way that existing members could, during the process of negotiation, send a signal to these new members, right? So, again, if you're thinking about NATO expansion, is there something that the existing NATO members could do to reassure these new members who come in that they aren't going to be taken advantage of in, in any fashion? Um, that I mean, it's probably that might be more, as you said, more of a relevant concern in trade organizations, right? In, in trade, in, in trade, in trade situations. Um, I'm trying to th think a little bit though about the nature of that signal, what that might be, right? I mean, sort of empirically, what is it that existing members of the institution could do to reassure new members that they are going to get the full benefits once they enter? Um, it's, it's worth thinking about. It's, I mean, I can't off the top of my head come up with a nice a nice application of that, although, you know, you could see it. I mean, it might almost make more sense if you're, you know, maybe actually the application of that might make the most sense would be just to think about the creation of an entirely de novo new agreement, right? Rather than we have this existing institution and potential new members, which 
makes it almost automatically a very one-sided situation. Just think about two, uh, you know, say two big states that are trying to decide whether to, you know, create a free trade agreement, right? And so there's uncertainty on both sides, and then you have to they have to think about what demands are you going to make to actually bring this new trade agreement into effect, and think about that as potentially a signaling device on both sides. That that might be the more useful way to to approach that. Yeah, it might. Yeah, I don't know. You're right. I, I, I actually have no idea until I work through it, but that's that's possible. Yeah. <laughs> yes? Um, I'm still, uh, I'm really interested in this puzzle of why they would have to be some, why there be an asymmetry between membership characteristics and entrance costs, so I can return to that. Okay. Um, uh, and just on the side, whatever we have a constructive zero, often we have a constructive zero outcome, so I can say just for fun, I'm going to offer the rationalist counter example. Just for fun, I'm going to offer some constructive zero. Okay, okay good. Yeah, yeah. And so what if there was precedent? Which is this idea that they're, you know, thinking about a series of potential new members and implications of one for the next might be a really fruitful way to go. Um, and this idea of having the entry costs being connected to various parameters in the model, which has come up a lot, um, that, I mean, that could be the way to go. Maybe to justify what I'm doing here, what, what I want to know is how far can we get with a simple signaling story? And this is a really simple signaling story. This is just sort of, you know, this is pretty generic. And, and I, I'm making a bet that I think it's going to take us pretty far, that, that much of what's going on is just demanding sort of almost arbitrary things of new members in order for them to, to prove themselves, right, that they're worthy of being members of the institution and being trusted by the existing members of the institution. And I want to see how far that's going to take me. So, you know, maybe that'll turn out to be wrong. And maybe it's, it's going to be true that what is happening here isn't just a simple signaling story, but that the reforms are more substantive, right, and the reforms are actually going to change the benefits of cooperation on both sides. Um, and, and that what's going on is not screening and signaling. And, you know, I think only time will tell. I mean, obviously, I want to see how far I can get with this and then see how it goes. Um, as far as the whole socialization uh, side of things, so 
if what the institution is doing is really trying to socialize the new members that they meet some ideal type, I, I would think that the most effective way to do that would be to let them in without really demanding very much of anything up front and then work with them once they're in there, right? Or to create sort of a halfway house, which is sort of NATO's partnership for peace, right? You create a halfway house, you work with them very hard in there to start, you know, sort of getting them in line, start to socialize them, and then eventually bring them in. Um, and I think that process would look quite different than the process I'm describing, right, which is that you demand that they do a whole lot of stuff before you even let them in and start getting any of the benefits of cooperation. Um, so obviously I don't want to deny that that whole socialization function is going on quite a bit, and I think, I think some of the best evidence for it actually is in the NATO case, that NATO has put a tremendous amount of effort into socializing new members and has been quite, quite effective. Um, I think the evidence on other European institutions is actually quite a bit more mixed. I mean, there certainly have been efforts to socialize, but when people have really pushed for evidence of it, it's been surprisingly difficult to, um, to find. So that, that is an alternative mechanism, but I think the institutional structure that would be most conducive to socialization is quite different than institutional structure that is explicitly designed to screen out some members that are just never going to make it. You know? So I, I, I think you could look at it on the ground and see which one is actually going on. Yeah, and maybe I should. <laughs> maybe I should just use Sanchez's model. And okay, <laughs> I will give that serious consideration. <laughs> okay. Great. Thank you. Appreciate it.